This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio, on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio, and also available on iTunes. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, Edward Lewis talks about his new memoir, The Man from Essence, creating a magazine for black women. Then PW Deputy Reviews Editor Gabe Habish explores PW's first fiction feature. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. So speaking of next week, our yes. guest next week is author Jim Butcher. And this week, he's at number one on our hardcover fiction Fantastic. bestseller list with Skin Game. This is the 15th Great. book mm-hmm. in uh, his long-running fantasy series, uh, the Harry Dresden books, Dresden Files. Um, our review was kind of kind of middling. It says that this one doesn't do a lot to advance the overall story. I and mean, it's number 15 in the series. It's kind of, right. what do you expect? Uh, it, it's hard to, to bring in new twists when you have the weight of all of that history behind you. Sure. Uh, sure. So, Harry Dresden uh, is, is a wizard living in Chicago. He's also the winter knight of the fairy court. Um, and he's forced by his boss, the Queen of Air and Darkness to join up with his longtime foe to break into the Vault of Hades. Uh, And we say uh, there's a surprising revelation about the parasite that Dresden has inside him, uh, but it doesn't really alter the series' status quo or significantly change the essence of the lead's character or personality. That said, his character and personality is what keeps the readers coming back, and so that's probably what put him at number one on our hardcover fiction bestseller list. Fantastic. I look forward to talking to him next week then. At number two in the fiction list, uh, we have Ghost Ship by Clive Cussler and Graham Brown. This is the 12th book in the NUMA Files adventure series. Uh, and this takes Kurt Austin, who's the director of special projects at NUMA, which is the National Underwater Marine Agency, across the globe in search of the long-lost love of his life, who also happens to be the world's preeminent expert in cybersecurity. So it's a very modern adventure. Uh, say Cussler, Cussler delivers all of the usual twists and turns on the way to the Explosive climax. Great. And a little further down the list, uh, at number 12, is Suspicion by Joseph Finder. uh, This lean, crisp thriller, which the PW Review says is a zipping jaguar of a ride. Uh, It's about an author who's having a, a tough time trying to deal with tuition and cranky administrators at his daughter's school. Um, and then uh, gradually it, everything gets tangled up with old money, new money, uh, and cash that comes with a price. Uh, there's especially an especially compelling side character, a Mexican doctor who aids the poor by day and at night dispatches cartel foes with faux natural causes. So a lot of uh, international politics in this one, uh, and also plenty of Boston, it sounds like, lots of uh, local character there. So that's at number 12. And his books are uh, also hit the bestseller list whenever they come out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, very reliable. Great. Nonfiction. We have only three new books in the top 30 books. Wow. 
The first one, uh, number 12, is Tom Robbins. Many people will know him from even Cowgirls Get the Blues. Yeah, I'm used to seeing him on the fiction list. Right, exactly. This is a memoir. Tibetan Peach Pie is the title, a true account of an imaginative life. We say ever the raconteur, Robbins carries us along a magical wonder tour in this high-flying, zen-like, and cinematic tour of some of the episodes in his journey through space and time. It's arranged loosely chronologically, but more thematically. And um, we see Robert calls into his tales with a wink and a nod and never lets us go until we've heard it all starred review. And uh, it's good to see it on the bestseller list. Number 17. This is John Gordon. Uh, he's uh, been no, he's no stranger to the bestseller list. Uh, this book is called The Carpenter, a story about the greatest success strategies of all. So it's an inspirational book filled with powerful lessons and the greatest success strategies of all. Or so says the publicity. So uh, this one, this wasn't uh, anything we we actually didn't. Uh, we don't have a review of this one in just yet, but that is just calling from the publicity material. Finally, at number thirty, we have a book: uh, Tom Saleo and Tom Mannion, two Toms. This is from Da Capo Press. Brothers Forever: The Enduring Bond Between a Marine and a Navy Seal That Transcended Their Ultimate Sacrifice. Mannion Saleo, Saleo is the editor of the Unknown Soldiers blog. Here they uh, deliver the tragic tale of the former sons Travis and Travis's friend Brendan Looney, who met in 2001 when they served as midshipmen at the U.S. Naval Academy. So we say it's a moving story told well, albeit with the heavy use of reconstructed quotes, and it succeeds as a testament to the courage and dedication of two young men who are now buried next to each other at Arlington National Cemetery. So this book is number 30 on our nonfiction bestseller list. Sounds like a real tearjerker. Yeah, yeah. And uh, there's been a lot of these, uh, a lot of uh, military memoirs, or, or at least memoirs written by former uh, uh, men and women in the military. Or, and uh, and, and we, I think we're going to continue seeing a lot of this. Yeah, and, and until we bring them home. Yeah. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Edward Lewis tells us how some enterprising black men created one of the foremost magazines for black women. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Edward Lewis on the line. He's the co-founder of Essence Magazine and the author of The Man from Essence. Edward, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, so tell us a little bit about uh, the beginnings of Essence Magazine and uh, how you came to write a book about it now, 45 years later. Well, the beginning is, I, I think, uh, quite fascinating from the standpoint of a story that needed to be told and how my colleagues and I, four black men who came together with a bold idea to, to talk about the beauty of intelligence of black women began in 1968 with a simple request to come to a meeting uh, at the brokerage firm of Shearson Hamill. Shearson Hamill is going through lots of changes, name changes, but it was Shearson. Mm-hmm. And the idea was for five, 25 young blacks who showed up at the meeting uh, to talk about how to get into business. This is against a backdrop of all the things that happened in 1968 uh, with the killing of Kennedy, certainly with Martin Luther King. So there was a desire in the country uh, to try to get uh, blacks included, uh, particularly from the standpoint of doing business. And at this meeting, uh, November 8, uh, 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 1968, the the second in command at Shearson Hamill was talking about capitalism and why the need to to go into business 
Um, and my former partner raised his hand and said, I've had an idea for a magazine for Negro women. And the man who brought us together, uh, his name is Russ Goings, said, there's Ed Lewis over there. He knows something about money. And why don't you two get together? And several other colleagues, uh, my partners, uh, we came together. We did not know each other. And uh, we decided to come together to put some meat on this idea about a magazine for Negro women, and, and that's how we, we really got started. But against the backdrop <clears throat> is because we also knew that the other women's magazines, uh, the Red Books, the Ladies' Home Journal, uh, Harper's Bazaar, Vogue, we're not talking about the beauty and aspirations of black women. So that provided us with a, uh, a niche uh, to fulfill a hole that was in the marketplace to talk about a segment um, that was uh, was not uh, that no one was dealing with. Right, and this this was at a time when it was still very hard for black women to break into modeling, and uh, there were there were a few who were prominent and uh, you know, doing things like fashion design, but it, it was still just a, a very restricted atmosphere. Indeed, there there in, in terms of opportunities for uh, black models, there are practically none. Uh, back in, in the in the early seventies, and and we really, from the standpoint of uh, uh, when advertisers did come into the magazine, uh, we insisted uh, that uh, the advertisements uh, would be uh, black subjects or uh, uh, black personalities, and we got a lot of pushback about that. And a lot of people did not want to. A lot of advertisers did not want to advertise with us. Of course, they didn't want to go ahead and expend the quote extra money to uh, to do something that they felt was. Uh, uh, special but um, uh, we persisted and and uh, and indeed in in time what you've seen in terms of uh, f- uh, from the Beverly Johnson's uh, uh, to Iman uh, who ultimately graced the, the pages of the other women's magazines uh, but essence was out there at the forefront of really highlighting uh, the beauty of, of certainly of black women so tell me who who were your advertisers? I mean, uh, and just going back a little bit, you knew uh, you you were pretty confident that this magazine would sell, especially marketing to to uh, black women. You know that they would buy it, but also you must have had an idea that I mean, obviously advertising is needed. Who who did you first approach? And I can tell you in the the, the first issue. Um, we had 13 pages of ads, and in the next several issues, uh, we have five pages each. So advertising had always been a struggle, mm-hmm. but we did determine uh, that uh, the categories of, of beauty, uh, of fashion, um, health, uh, food, um, um, health needs, um, um, uh, consumer products uh, might be uh, hospitable to uh, uh, um, uh, wanting to advertise uh, in, uh, in a black magazine. Uh, ultimately, uh, uh, the automobile industry uh, came around to wanting to uh, um, to advertise because they were really the first to to understand and realize that the decision maker, uh, particularly in the African American uh, market, uh, were women. And and now we now realize women in particular and black women in particular uh, <clears throat> are really the eighty ninety percent decision makers in, in generally in households. But it was it was it was always a, a struggle to to tell our story as to why uh, uh, one should pay attention to this market. And one of the things I'm I'm most proud of, if you good, is that I we I we did change how Madison Avenue views now black women. We see we see black women in Estee Lauder or Lancome. 
and automobile ads and, and insurance ads. So they're just all over the lot. But that was not the case when we started uh, back in the early 70s. And your editors-in-chief were, were uh, all women. You had, it looked like two, each one lasted a year, 70, 71. And then you had a third who uh, was there for about a decade. And, and tell us about the editorial process, and, or at least the, your, your editorial uh, decisions. In 1970, when Essence made its debut, every woman's magazine, with the exception of, of uh, Glamour, and Cosmopolitan, uh, the editor-in-chief were men. We, in our naivete, thought that if you're going to have a, a, a woman's magazine, the spokesperson should be a woman. Um, and uh, we would uh, step back and, and take care of the, the business end of trying to uh, sell the magazine and certainly get uh, uh, the circulation up in terms of the growth of the magazine. And so during that process of, of, of uh, trying to find uh, uh, the right editors uh, for the magazine uh, to make sure that uh, we hit the right notes, um, <clears throat> we've gone through a number of editors. But the two editors-in-chief uh, that had, uh, uh, I would say, the most impact on the magazine for survey, um, Marsha Gillespie, whom I really believe gave us our soul, if you like. Mm -hmm. uh, Marsha was there almost 10 years until she went on to do other things. And when I elevated, um, I made Susan Taylor, the editor-in-chief in 1981. Susan was there for close to 20 years and just did a, a, an outstanding job of really cementing uh, the needs uh, of black women in terms of, of her totality uh, with regard to all the things that we've been able to to talk about editorially. Mm -hmm. And it's been the content uh, over these years, after now 44 years, in essence, has been here. That have uh, that have made black women respond to a magazine that they can call their own, and that they can know that uh, uh, that's in their corner, that's uh, that's become a friend, uh, that that stands behind them, and and, and tries to um, tries its best to deal with issues of career, beauty, relationships, um, what's going on um, uh, globally uh, uh, within a, within the world, and uh, taking interest in politics. And so we've tried to touch all those bases against the backdrop of what it is to be a black woman uh, in our uh, society that still uh, presents obstacles uh, because of the color of one's skin. So what was the office atmosphere like at Essence? You were handling the business side. Were, were you all together in the office with the editorial staff? Well, we, we, we started in a, in a brownstone mm -hmm. uh, at 102 East 30th Street on, on Lexington Avenue, and we had four or five floors. Um, and um, I mean, in terms of how we uh, we were structured um, at 102 East 30th, the business side was on the ground floor, and the editorial had the next two or three floors. Uh, but there was always uh, was some interactions, and we tried to, and I tried to, in terms of my leadership, is is to stay out of the way of how uh, the editorial was created, because we just felt that uh, that uh, black women, or in in terms of what um, new uh, what should go into the magazine and for us to to get involved in the editorial process unless there are problems that came up with with uh, with advertisers or with the issues of, of cigarettes uh, I remember for example um, uh, we had a column in the magazine called your sexual health mm -hmm. And uh, some people, some advertisers thought that was uh, pretty racy, and particularly, uh, for example, IBM. 
And IBM said, we're not going to advertise uh, until you modify your uh, your column. And we said, we're not going to do that uh, because we felt that uh, this issue needs to be talked about uh, in a way that um, is not condescending uh, to our audience. And so um, we did that, And but IBM did stop advertising. But And we had to deal with issues regarding cigarettes, uh, the use of cigarettes in our community. Um, and we were criticized for continuing to accept uh, cigarettes in in, uh, in the magazine. Um, but so those are some of the, uh, the things that we had to, to deal with uh, editorially. But by and large, I think we had the good sense to, because I really believe, I'm, a, I'm a, a manager who believes that if the person who might ask to do their jobs and they can do it, I don't need to micromanage them. <clears throat> I need for them to do their jobs and be supportive, and where there's conflict, then step in and, and have, help to resolve whatever needs to be resolved. But understanding that editorial and advertising needs to work together ultimately for the for the good of, of the of uh, the company in terms of how we're going to sustain uh, essence as a as a viable um, um, business entity. Now, yours was not the usual progression into the magazine world. Uh, I, as you write in your book, you you uh, ha- once had a scholarship, a football scholarship, uh, and then you uh, dropped out of law school, I believe. Yes. Tell us about tell us about how you came, uh, you know, your your background, and how you built up to uh, starting this magazine. Well, I'm, I uh, owe a great deal. I, I, I tell my family that I'm, I'm blessed to be a part of the family that I was born into. I was born in New York. Uh, my family on my mother's side are from a rural uh, uh, part of Virginia called Farmville, Virginia. The county is Prince Edward County. And my grandmother was really, the, for me, the introduction to a woman being empowered uh, because my mother's one of 14. And when my grandmother's husband was killed in 1927. She was given a settlement and of uh, $5,000, and she bought this 110 acres of land. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's where the family grew. And my mother, uh, being here in New York, from uh, it seemed to me the, the, the hour school was over when I was five or six years old at three o'clock. I was on a bus by six going to to Virginia to to spend my summers at my grandparents' farm, and during those that period of time, my grandparents truly believed, particularly my grandmother, the hard work killed nobody, and because she had a ten, twenty, try grandchildren running around there, didn't one give a time. She made don't no distinctions about uh, boys did this or girls did that, and so we had to do it all in terms of the chores. But for me, my uh, my mother's brother. He was on his, in his own business. He was a logger. And all of us admired him um, in terms of uh, we saw the results. We saw hardy work. But he used to talk to me about, and I used to work for him, he used to talk to me about having control over one's life, having control over one's destiny. And I didn't know necessarily that I was going to be in, in the publishing business, but I wanted to have something on my own. So that seed was planted by my uncle. And so when the opportunity presented itself, uh, with regard to going to business, I decided to take a risk and 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 try to do something to make a difference in the world of, of uh, for black women. In part two, I witnessed uh, how my aunts, my grandmother, and my mother were. I saw them how they were viewed as mothers and workers. They were not appreciated. They were my heroes. And so to be involved with a magazine that would celebrate their history, their experience was something uh, that uh, was dear to me. 
but or and secondly, the importance of education um, 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 was a part of our DNA in terms of as a way out of, of a part of a poverty. And so, in going through from going from New Mexico, 2,500 miles uh, from New York to New Mexico in a football scholarship, lost my football scholarship um, in my second year there. But again, uh, and the importance of reading, writing, arithmetic. And then I went to graduate school, and then I got into Georgetown University. And I thought that I really was on my way to being a big-time lawyer. Uh, regrettably, and one of the the, the disappointments um, in my career is that I flunked out of law school, uh, and that was a true blow to my ego because I love going to school. My mother had no problems about me going to school, and I I did well on on balance uh, academically. But when I flunked out of law school, I thought my life had ended. Um, and but on the other hand, um, um, if I had not if I had stayed in law school, I certainly would not have been involved in helping start a, a magazine. Uh, that uh, still stands today, but it's uh, education was important, and it's you know when you if you if something uh, if you have a, a setback, uh, you got to find a way to to get yourself up and, and keep on going, and and particularly if you if you are determined. I was determined that I wanted to be to be something, do something on my own, and and I was determined to want to make a difference uh, in terms of uh, the choice I made about going into a business. So the magazine went from a circulation of 50,000 in 1971 yeah. to over a million now. So what do you think is the, the secret or the secrets to your success? We started out being a one-dimensional uh, magazine, a fashion-oriented magazine, and we began to realize that uh, there's a wealth of information that black women uh, wanted to know about. And so we evolved into a lifestyle women's surface magazine. And I think uh, even when we had recessions uh, in the early 70s and 80s and 90s, the circulation of Essence always grew because I think editorially, we touched a nerve in terms of what black women were seeking in terms of how they wanted to live their lives. And so whatever topics that we dealt with in terms of career suggestions or, or, or what's going on in education, how to take care of one's family, uh, relationships, uh, just giving advice um, uh, struck a nerve. And, and I think that black women believe that um, uh, that um, we cared about them, cared about their issues, cared about how they look, what, they, uh, what concerns they have about their, their beauty regimen or what's going on with their hair, uh, for example. And um, when we made the decision, for example, to, um, to do a music festival in New Orleans over the 4th of July weekend back in 1995, we're about to celebrate the 20th anniversary of, of the festival, which has turned out to be just an incredible uh, uh, revenue generator and, and a new revenue stream uh, for the company. But I have reminded people, no one comes to New Orleans over the 4th of July weekend um, unless uh, there's a reason. And the reason why women decided to come is because they knew that they could trust uh, what Essence uh, uh, told them um, or tried to tell them in terms of, of making their life much more livable and uh, much better. So I think it's we hit an editorial nerve, and it's about the content, and it's about making them feel good about themselves. It's about not condescending to them um, in terms of all the subjects that we were able to cover all these years that uh, they still respond. 
I just say that essence is around 44 years. For me, it's really 46, because that's when the idea was hatched. It brings a truly quiet uh, joy to me. And, and even today, when I see the young lady, Lapita, who was just uh, crowned to be one of the most beautiful black women, in, one of the most beautiful women in the world. Um, and and then you have uh, Beyonce, who's who's considered one of the most influential women in the world on time. Um, I can remember how black women were thought of. Uh, in terms of 1970, we had to overcome the perception of black women as uncouth, loudmouthed, unfeminine, on welfare, and poor and can't read. And here we're now in the White House, we have uh, Michelle Obama, the, the first lady, uh, with her two kids. It's just absolutely mind-boggling for me uh, to know that, that uh, I may have helped uh, create a different perception uh, about how black women uh, were thought of in, in terms of how they are viewed today. We've been talking with Edward Lewis. You can find his book, The Man from Essence, in stores right now. Edward, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Deputy Reviews Editor Gabe Habesh tells us about some hot new authors, so stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. Today, PW Deputy Reviews Editor Gabe Habash is here to tell us about PW's annual first fiction feature. Hello, Gabe. How are you doing? Good. So this is our annual first fiction. How does this come together? Well, we do it a couple times a year. This is the summer first fiction so this is books uh coming out in the next couple months mm-hmm. um some of which are coming out uh as early as next week um and what happens is in the reviews department we just take a look at um all the books for the dedicated months that we're looking at the window and you know try to get a range of different types of books and books that look promising and the only real thing anybody has in common with each other is that it's their first book of fiction mm-hmm so some of these folks are uh, nonfiction authors, or have they had jobs in other areas? Are they starting on writing careers? Is this a hobby? Um, tell us a little bit about these authors. I mean, we have a we try to get a range, like I said. So we have some people who have you know honest day jobs, people who are you know mothers, people who um, are professors, people who are rock stars. We have a pretty wide range, and um, we just try to get a book for every type of reading taste and so we have seven this year and i think we have a pretty good crop great well uh let's jump right in who do we have uh the first one we have is lauren owen her book is called the quick and it's from random house and it's a literary uh vampire in victorian london story and uh it's it's pretty great it's uh one of those like slow accumulation build books um you know an old victorian tradition type book and it's you know 500 pages and with the added juicy bit that it has vampires and death and that type of stuff in it now usually vampires would land on my desk but it sounds like this is being billed as more of a a literary title yeah it has blurbs from uh hillary mantel and kate atkinson and tana french and it's being compared to Anne rice um we started uh we gave it a start review um and lauren owen is um she has, an M- she has an MA in creative writing from University of East Anglia, and she also studied Victorian literature at Oxford, so obviously her research there helped inform the book. Sure. So who's the next one on your list? 
The, the next one is uh, Boris Fishman, and his book is called A Replacement Life, and it's from Harper. And uh, Boris, his book is about um, a failed journalist who forges Holocaust restitution claims for his Brooklyn dwelling uh, family, and they sort of get him wrapped up in this whole forging scheme with other Russian Jews in the area. And Boris, um, actually, in the in the piece, he talks about how the book is sort of a, bl- a, bend, a blend of uh, fact and fiction, which is interesting thematically since the book has to do with forgery. Um, and he said that the novel has its origins in the 1990s when uh, he actually emigrated from the Soviet Union, mm-hmm. and he was actually filling out his grandmother's application for for the Holocaust for Holocaust restitution. Um, and the book was just uh, named as a Discover Great New Writers pick. We started the review. Um, it has all types of buzz building around it, and that actually comes out I think next week. It's or it's already out. It's it's this month. It's June for sure. And it sounds like uh, with Gary Steingart, who also a uh, Russian uh, emigre, kind of taps into his life. Oh, yeah. Gary Gary blurbed it. Oh, he did? Yep. How surprising Not surprising. <laughs> Gary never blurbs. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting topic also with um, Tanahasi Coates' piece on The Atlantic about the possibility of reparations in the U.S. getting a lot of currency right now. Yeah, it's a, definitely a timely book for sure. Um and the the third book um, is by Courtney Mom. Her book is called "I Am Having So Much Fun Here Without You," which is a pretty great title. Mm-hmm. And um, it's coming from Touchstone. That's also out in June, and um, it's set partially in Paris, and it follows a British artist um, as his marriage unravels. So it has a sort of like familial drama, uh, sort of Nick Hornby type thing going on. Mm-hmm. Um, the interesting story, backstory with her book, with Courtney's book, is that um, she actually started the book 10 years ago and wrote it, and she had a few close calls with getting it picked up by a publisher, but it didn't sell, and she just sort of put it in a drawer and, um, you know, left it there, and she's had the same agent um, the whole time, and her agent re, re regenerated her interest in the book 10 years later, and she rewrote it, and uh, it sold, and um, one of the things that I think uh, Courtney talked about that informed the the book is that it coincided with her um, with her pregnancy with her first child, and you know it, it dictated a lot of her routine. You know she would wake up and uh, you know then try to write as much before her you know before the baby came. Mm-hmm. So she she had a she had a time limit. She had a deadline. Right? Yeah, even though it had been, <laughs> even though it had been waiting for ten years. So it's just kind of an interesting story with her. Yeah, I'm getting a lot of, of international flavor from uh, all of these yeah. selections. Yeah, I, we uh, we have some uh, we have some very varied books. I don't I don't I don't think we have any like really straight up New York books. Wow. Um, which is... Wow, that's surprising. You know how much New York publishers love publishing books about New York, ideally by New York writers. That's right. Yeah, I don't think we... I think aside from Boris's book, which is about the restitution claims and the forgery, uh, that's the only New York set book, but that's obviously got a whole other take on it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the next book is actually a thriller, uh, and it's by Josh Mallerman, and he is uh, part of the indie rock band The High Strung, and uh, his book is called Bird Box, and it has a pretty um, has a pretty great premise. It's um, about three people in a boat going down a river, and they're all blindfolded, and that's all I'll say. <laughs> um, and it's just like you know this pretty gripping thriller. And um, his backstory is that he is 
according to his editor, Lee Boudreaux at Echo, um, he's just an unstoppable creative force is what she says about him. Mm-hmm. And that he wrote, and he says he wrote Bird Box in 26 days and he wrote about 4,500 words per session. Um, and he, you know, he had an idea and he went forth with it and he, and now it's published and it's, we actually started the review. So, and this was a big book at the, uh, this was one of the buzz books. For yeah. The yeah. I mean, I think once you hear that premise, a lot of people are like, well, that sounds like something I would like to read. Right. Let's, and let's and since then, that. Lee Boudreaux has left Echo. Yeah. And now, it, uh, Little Brown. Right. And, uh, it tells a little bit about his background. So he's a musician with the indie band, the high strung. Yeah. High he's, strung, like. he's, uh, originally f- he, well, that's a Detroit based band. And, um, and he's been obviously toured all over the, the country and he's, uh, been featured on this American life. Um, and he just seems like he's the type of person who, if there's like a cocktail napkin in front of him, he's going to write some mm. ideas on it. Right. Um, and then the next book is, um, called California and it's by Eden Lepucky, and it's from Little Brown. That's also out soon. I think it's July. Mm-hmm. Um, and her backstory with the book is that she wrote it during a uh, 12-day residency at U-Cross in Wyoming, and uh, she wrote the first 40 pages of the book in under two weeks, and uh, there were you know deer and sheep running around outside her window when she was starting the book, and that was the springboard for it. And this is a uh, post-apocalyptic California um, hence the title. Um, and the, similar to what happened with Courtney mom, her, um, her pregnancy actually informed the book. So one of the, um, main facets of the book is that it's a story of a couple struggling to find a place for themselves and their, their forthcoming baby. And it's just a lot more complicated in the post apocalyptic world, as you can imagine, there's a lot more danger out there kind of a, a similar theme is uh cormac mccarthy's the road and that he's taking care of yeah. his uh young son trying to get him through life before he, he himself does. yeah there's definitely a uh road vibe to it and i'm mm-hmm. sure the same type of readers will will definitely find a lot to love right. in it it's it's interesting seeing the the literary world again continue with the po- post-apocalyptic trends that have been going on on the science fiction side for decades now. Yeah. Um, and definitely an emphasis on family has been a, a recent trend that right. I've noticed there. Right. Yeah. And um, the next book is uh, called Invisible Beasts by Sharona Muir. And this is a, this is our small press book. It's um, from Bellevue, um, which you know made its name from Tinkers by Paul Harding a few years back when that won the Pulitzer. Um, and this book is actually really interesting because Sharona Muir, um, the book is hard to describe, but it's, it's structured as a, as like a field guide for fake animals. Um, and what it does through that structure is, uh, sort of tell this family story. Um, but the, the, the backstory with the book is, uh, came from a game that she used to play with, um, her biologist colleagues at Bowling Green in Ohio. And, um, you know, they would, the game would basically be that Muir would invent an an imaginary animal based on scientific research and, um, describe it to her colleagues. And then, um, they would come up with a real animal that fit the profile and they would tell her that, well, whatever human imagination could conceive that there was already uh, a name for it. Um, so she sort of took that as a springboard and made this sort of imaginative, uh, field guide and actually fits in really 
cleanly with Bellevue's um, mission statement, which is that they look to publish literary works that intersect between arts and sciences. So mm. it's a it's a pretty great fit and story for them. That sounds really neat. Yeah, um, we started the review. Uh, it's 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 pretty crazy. It's just not really like anything else, especially structure wise. It's mm-hmm. been out for a long time. And so our last book is We Are Called to Rise, and it's by Laura McBride, and it's out from Simon & Schuster. And um, Laura is a little bit different than everybody else. She has no real connections to New York. Um, she lives in Nevada. The book is set in Las Vegas. She teaches creative writing and composition at the College of Southern Nevada. She has two kids, and the book is this sort of um, ensemble, polyphonic book where there's all these characters intersecting including an eight-year-old albanian immigrant boy um there's a returning soldier in the book and then there's a woman struggling uh with her with her marriage um and the backstory with we are called to rise is that she started working on it at yato and um she similar to uh eden lepucky just you know went through a whirlwind Mm. she was working eight to ten hours and that's how the book got born Oh, fantastic. Well, Gabe, thank you so much for coming on talking about this. So it sounds like we do it three times a year. It's three times a year. Summer and fall. Yeah, every four months. So we'll have you on to talk about it in another four months. Looking forward to it. And this will be out in Monday's issue of Publishers Weekly. Great. Great. Well, thank you so much, Gabe. Always a pleasure to have you. Thanks, guys. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. You can find this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and on iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. Check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 